First Class Fatherhood. That is where Alec Lace comes in with his popular podcast. And one of the most interesting was on a podcast. Alec Lace interviews high-profile fathers from actors to NFL players with a vision to change the narrative of fatherhood and family life. Welcome, everybody, to episode 635 of First Class Fatherhood, which is a family-made media podcast, and I have got a tremendous honor of welcoming Dr. Gad Sad to the podcast today. He is a professor of marketing at Concordia University. Dr. Gad Sad is an evolutionary behavioral scientist. He has written a number of books, one of them in particular, The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. Well, isn't that the truth? He wrote the book about uh, two years ago in 2020. I read it six months ago. It's a real banger. I highly recommend you read it. Gad Sad has got a number of other accolades. He has been a visiting associate professor at Cornell University, Dartmouth, the University of California, Irvine. He is a highly educated first-class father. I love his philosophy. It's really an honor I get a chance to speak to him here on the podcast today. You got That's what I love about having the opportunity to do this podcast, is to be able to reach out and have a conversation with people like Gad Sad. Truly unbelievable for me. He's got a very popular YouTube channel and a podcast called The Sad Truth. You can find the link to those in the description of today's podcast episode. Dr. Gad Sad will be here with me in just a few minutes, so please stick around for the interview. And today's interview with Dr. Gad Sad was recorded on video and is available for you guys to watch on my YouTube channel. So if you'd like to watch today's conversation, uh, please subscribe to First Class Fatherhood on YouTube. Link is in the description of today's podcast episode. All right, and Wednesday on the podcast, we're going to go from the highly intelligent Gad Sad to a dad who I've seen do the stupidest things I've ever seen anybody do, uh, but found a way to brilliantly market them and make a fortune doing so. Johnny Knoxville joins me on the podcast Wednesday. We're going to talk about his new comedy series reboot that is going to be dropping this week on Hulu. Make sure you follow me on Instagram at Alec underscore Lace for all the other upcoming guest announcements. Got some great ones coming your way soon. If you have the opportunity, please help me spread the word about this show to every father in your neighborhood or in your contact list and let them know about the show that's here celebrating fatherhood and family life. You guys know it. Father's Day is every day right here on the podcast. Let's jump into it right now. My conversation with Dr. Gad Sad is straight ahead on First Class Fatherhood. All right, joining me now, First Class Father Gad Sad. Welcome to First Class Fatherhood. Thank you so much for, uh, for inviting me. All right, let's start like this. How many kids do you have? How old are they? I have two kids. They're 13 and 10. Wow, very cool. Um, if you could, Gad, just take a second here to hit my listeners with a little bit about your background and what you do. So I'm a evolutionary behavioral scientist, meaning that I apply evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology to study human behavior. In particular, uh, I've spent quite a bit of time studying you know, economic behavior and consumer behavior. I'm housed in a business school. I'm a professor. I'm also an author who has written about my scientific work, but also my most recent book, uh, which should be behind me here. I'm not sure if you could see it. The, the yellow one, The Parasitic Mind, was a book on how you know bad ideas, idea pathogens, parasitic ideas, they first flourish in university settings, and then they eventually proliferate to every nook and cranny of, of society. So I'm both a professor and someone who weighs in on ideas within the public sphere. Yeah, I, I love what you do. We're going to jump in a little bit more into the parasitic mind in a second. But if you could then take me 13 years back. Uh, how old were you about then when you became a dad? And how did that experience change your perspective on life? Right. I was uh, 44. So I was, quote, an old dad. But it was by uh, 
by uh, choice and that my wife and I have been together for 23 years, but uh, we decided to wait. And in retrospect today, you know, I know that we should live without regret, but I maybe regret that my kids are not number three and four rather than number one and two. I would have loved to have a, a larger family. Uh, how did it change me in, in every possible way? I started uh, being afraid when I would get on a plane that the plane would crash. I never thought about that before I had children. Uh, I never worried about that. So it certainly changes your you know day to day calculus. But also it's it's profound not to sound cliche ish, but there is no role that I value more than being a, a father, a good father, hopefully to my children. Yeah, very well said, Gad. And yeah, two things uh, on what you said there. My father had me when he was 50, so uh, I was the last for him. And I understand that kind of uh, relationship and how that goes. But also, too, I agree with you there. Like my wife and I don't want to ever fly on the same plane to go somewhere together just in case, God forbid, something happens. Our kids now are orphans. We'd rather go separate flights to get to where we're going. This way it gives us twice the shot. You know, that's the kind of way that mine kind of shifts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How many kids do you have? We have four. We have four. Oh, so, sure. Wow. Yep. Yeah. 16, 15, 11 and eight at the moment here. I all just started school actually today, tomorrow. This is their week back to school. And now, obviously, you know, you at 13 and 10, you're right there in the thick of it, too. And obviously in the parasitic mind, you go into this whole thing about the infectious ideas, uh, killing common sense, the whole bit at the college level. But we're starting to see that gap at the grade school level as well. Are you noticing that with your kids and the kind of um, I don't want to say indoctrination, but the kind of uh, messaging that they're kind of getting from the school systems, even at that younger age now? Oh, yes. So uh, and uh, my daughter now is out of elementary school. But at the time, about two years ago, uh, one of her science, I think it was her science teacher. I might get some of the details wrong. But uh, one of her teachers had the BLM, uh, you know, uh, whatever flag or something. Uh, and so I had written to the principal saying, look, uh, of course, people in a free society have every right to uh, advertise what their political beliefs are, but there is a line to be drawn when you're an educator. Even someone like me, who is a who's a public figure, who is a professor, I make a clear distinction between my role when I walk in as a professor and some of the positions that I take in the public arena, right? So I don't mix these two roles. And so I argued to the principal that it was not up to the uh, the teacher in question to advertise to the kids about BLM and so on. Uh, the, the principal tried to fight back, but uh, perhaps not coincidentally, about a day or two later, that uh, BLM flag was off. So I do see it happening. And uh, I think that every parent has a role to play in trying to unindoctrinate their kids. Yeah, and, and it's true. We're seeing that all over the place. It just seems like they do these. It's a tough time for parents that are trying to fight back against these kind of things that are just being. I know here in Jersey, two years ago, they added anal sex to the eighth grade uh, uh, curriculum. Uh, now this year they're trying to put in and it's being fought back and forth with kindergarten, first and second grade, learning about, um, you know, sexual orientation and stuff like that. And the BLM kind of knew that was a hustle in the beginning. And now it turns out that it was, uh, you know, you see all these people that robbed the coffers. Uh, so that turned out to, to, you know, to go south and, uh, and not to get too political here. But the the, the press secretary at the White House, Corrine Jean Perry, uh, she recently said in a statement that if you think the quote was something to the effect of um, 
Uh, if you're not with the majority of Americans, then that is extreme. That is an extreme way of thinking. And I would argue that the best way of thinking, like guys that I listen to, like either like Jim Rohn or guys that will say, walk away from the 95 percent, walk away from the 99 percent. Don't think like they think. Don't talk like they talk. And here we are being encouraged at the highest level to just go along with the majority. What's your take on all that? Uh, look, the the greatest historical figures are those who typically did not go with the majority, irrespective of which domain you're speaking of. Let me speak in the domain that I'm in, in academia. Charles Darwin is Charles Darwin precisely because he espoused a theory that at the time he knew he would get a lot of pushback against. And for 150 years, people have tried to falsify the theory of evolution, and yet it didn't ultimately stop him from proposing his idea, right? We used to think that the sun revolves around the earth. And if you thought otherwise, then you would be, you know, a blasphemous Cretan who should be burnt at the stake. Uh, Galileo, none other than Galileo was placed under house arrest because he espoused a different view, which is that the earth revolves around the sun. So, you know, you choose any major historical figure and I'll show you someone who went against the grain. That's what shapes society. And so, uh, of course, I don't support, uh, you know, being part of the herd, if only to conform. Yeah, and conformity seems to be a very big problem in our country right now as well. But uh, uh, getting back to like the universities, we had the whole thing now with the school um, loan, student loan forgiveness. These universities, I mean, it, as a, like I said, my son's starting his junior year of high school now. So that stuff is coming for us soon. And just seeing what's going over the cliff in front of us here, the parents that are putting their kids into school, they're getting no skill sets. They're coming out hating America, indoctrinating all this stuff. And they got a bill that they have no skill set to pay back. I mean, it's kind of frightening. Uh, and as for parents, what, what do you what is your advice to parents out there who are right there like I am uh, about sending their kids away to school? What, what's your take on all that? So I think what's really important. So I'm not going to what is the expression? Throw the baby with the bathwater. Right. So there are many elements of academia that are truly rotten. And that's that's exactly what I talk about in the parasitic mind. But of course, academia is still, uh, you know, an institutional structure that uh you know, results in great outcomes, right? All the great thoughts ultimately in one way or another do come out of academia. So I think what I would tell your children and any other parents uh, who are listening to the show, uh, choose your schools carefully, choose your discipline carefully, right? So if you're studying, you know, underwater lesbian dance therapy and you're spending $80,000 a year on that, well, then that might not be a good thing. So, and I'm not only, I don't mean to imply that it has to be practical knowledge. I don't mean to imply you only have to go to the business school or medical school or law school. You can study Shakespeare, but in a way that truly enriches your soul, that makes you a well-rounded, well-educated individual. So, so don't give up on academia, but be very careful in terms of which schools they attend, which professors they sign up with, which disciplines they take. Because as you said, ultimately, you're dishing out a lot of money. You want to make sure to get a return on investment. And the only way to do that is to be very proactive in seeing what it is that they're choosing as topics to study. Yeah. And what's fascinating, too, uh, Gad, is that like all these like, the original, I would say, self-help book or psychology philosophy book, the Bible, the Tao Te Ching, uh, certain of these works. I even heard you on, on uh, with Rogan talking about Marcus Aurelius. When you listen to all these type of philosophies, there is no such thing as this gender identity that we hear in any of these works where it's saying, like, for instance, like uh, uh, treat your neighbor the way you want to be treated. It doesn't mention the color of the neighbor, the orientation of the neighbor. It just treats 
it's one as all. And that way of thinking, especially it seems like in the college universities, I mean, I have friends that are like uh, police, former police officers, kids came out of college. Now they don't even talk because they're so anti-police and it's like it causes rips. And I, I just don't understand how that when did this entire shift, in your opinion, take place or is it has it always happened and we're just noticing it now? Well, when did this begin? So, I mean, if you're talking specifically about the pension toward identity politics, uh, there are two ways I could answer that. Look, it is part of our evolutionary history. It's part of the architecture of the human mind to think in a coalitional manner, to think blue team versus red team. But the beauty of the West is that we were able to overcome that, right, by having a set of foundational values that erased our you know, immutable differences and that said that we are all equal under the law, that it doesn't matter what your skin color is or your gender, you know, sexual orientation or gender identity. Uh, We transcend all those things and we unite under a common, in, in the case of the United States, under a common constitution. Regrettably, though, now we are reverting back to our basal instincts of tribalism, right? The reason why, by the way, in The Parasitic Mind, in chapter one, I spent quite a bit of time discussing my own personal history growing up in the Lebanese Civil War is precisely in answering your question, because I come from the perfect society if you wish to have tribalism, right? Lebanon is perfectly defined along tribal lines, more specifically along religious tribal lines, right? You're either a Maronite or you're a Sunni Muslim or you're a Shia Muslim or you're part of the very small minority at the time, like us who were Jewish Lebanese. And of course, tribalism always leads to the same end result, and that is everybody butchering everybody else. That's what we saw in Iraq recently. That's what we saw in Syria. That's what we saw in Rwanda. The the world history is replete with examples where tribalism takes over our brains and the neighbors who we used to coexist with for 40 years suddenly becomes our mortal enemy. So so to answer your question again in a long-winded way, regrettably, it is part of our evolutionary history, history to be tribal. But what made the West great is that we found a set of foundational values that allowed us to transcend this tribalism. And now we're reverting back to it. It's tragic. Wow. Yeah, very, very well said. And yeah, it, tragic it, it is. Let, let me get back to you as a father for a minute here, if we sure. could. I know you said 10 and 13. What type of disciplinarian are you as a dad? And is that different than the discipline style that you grew up with? Right. Sorry for the, the beats That's okay. I'm getting. Uh, uh, so I have a very different parental st- style from my from that of my parents. I'm a lot more uh, demonstrative in my affection. I'm a lot more hands-on. Uh, from a very young age, I from a very young age of my children, I treated them with the dignity of their personhood. Uh, meaning that I, you know, I I've walked with my son when he's not he's now this was about a year ago where I'm explaining to him uh, what libertarianism is because I just saw a cop hiding in the street corner giving out jaywalking tickets and so I wanted to explain to him whether it was the role of a 21 year old cop to be standing there deciding whether at the time I was 56 whether a 56 year old had the cognitive ability to decide whether he can cross the street or not and so. I didn't infantilize him. I didn't say, you know, he's just a kid. Let's just talk about uh, gummy bears. I spoke, I engaged his intellect, of course, in a way where I recognize that he's nine, but I recognize the dignity of his personhood. Now, that's very different from how things, not to stereotype how things are in the Middle East, where uh, shut up, kid, go sit with the children, right, before I smack you. 
So uh, it's a very different style. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that I can't, uh, you know, get upset at my children and be a, inter and a, be a disciplinarian. Uh, so the general dynamic is that from a moment-to-moment -moment perspective, my wife is the one who lays the law, and I'm kind of the sweet, affable guy. But then when I get angry, it's nuclear, and you better hide for the next four hours. So <laughs> I don't get angry very often, but when I do, look out, hang on. Yeah, and I would argue, too, that <clears throat> that philosophy is not only in the Middle East. That was here not too long ago, <clears throat> excuse me, the way fathers or, or parenting would be done. Now we see less and less of that as more people become afraid, in a sense, to discipline their children. And one thing I talk about on this show all the time, Gad, is that we have we got a fatherless crisis going on in our country. We got so many kids growing up without a father in the home, and it's really having a devastating result on our society, where I think if we could get more more dads back in the home, most of the problems that we're even seeing in our society would start to go away quickly. What's your take? Yeah, so I'll give you two answers that are both uh, evolutionary based uh, from my scientific work uh, or scientific interests also. Uh, number one, we're a biparental species. So of all mammalian species, we are by definition the prototypical biparental species, meaning that evolution has endowed an obligation on both parents to invest in their children. Now, that doesn't mean that men on average invest as much as women. That's certainly not true. And there's there's actually an evolutionary theory called parental investment theory that explained that that explains that dynamic. But we do a lot more than simply, you know, sire a child, right? For example, cheetahs, the only contribution of the male cheetah is to sire the 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 the, the cub and then he's off and running. He's gone. Humans are endowed, as I said, with this biparental responsibility. So that's that's why the, that's one of the reasons why, by the way, why we've evolved romantic love between parents because we need to to have the emotional, hormonal, neuroanatomical system that bonds us together long enough in order to be able to see the kid through sexual maturity. Right? We have a long juvenile period as as uh, as humans. It takes many years before you enter sexual reproduction maturity, and therefore it makes sense for us to have evolved this feeling of romantic love so that we could be bonded with this other person. The second example I was going to give you about the importance of fatherhood, since ultimately this is a podcast about fatherhood, it's actually a wonderful example of the interplay between the environment and our genes. And let me explain. So it turns out, so there's this concept, the fancy word is, in English you say menarche, M-E-N-A-R-C-H-E. -E. In French you say menarche. Menarche is the onset of the menstrual cycle in girls, right? So some girls will have the onset of menarche at 12, some will have it at nine, some will have it at 13. Well, it turns out that the timing of a girl's menarche is very much related to whether there is father absence or father presence in the home. I just, I know I just blew your brain and uh, your mind and all the other viewers. This demonstrates that even for something as fundamental as a young girl's physiology, it interacts with environmental cues. In this case, the environmental cue is whether the dad is present or not. And you may or may not have guessed that when the dad is not present, a little young girls go into menarche earlier. In other words, they enter the sexual reproductive window earlier when there isn't a father. So never mind all those other findings that relate, for example, to how having a father increase, decreases your chances of going to prison, you know, improves your lot in life and all that. Something as fundamental as when you get your menstrual cycle is related to dads. So dads are important, moms are important, 
let's hopefully have more biologically intact families. Yeah, well said. And you did blow my mind there. I do. I am familiar with a lot of the stats. I do a lot of research on this about the father effect not being in the home. And you're right. I mean, even uh, with, with the young girls, uh, their chances of becoming pregnant as a teenager are drastically higher without the father. But I didn't know that about the menstrual cycle. That that was uh, that's amazing. And it just seems like, too, that we, we've done this thing where it's almost like in when you're in third grade, like the boys are better than the girls. We play uh, tug of war together. We try to beat one another. And it's like it seems like that's kind of carried into our adulthood now where it's like the boys have to be better than the girls or the girls have to be better than the boys and not just be who we are. We've seen this attack on masculinity. Uh, it's so bad to be a man anymore. And it's just, it seems like it's done so much more damage to our culture. Uh, and I don't really know what the whole purpose of it is when you try to just kind of emasculate manhood into and just beat them down into a pulp and then expect the society to flourish. I don't understand the concept. Yeah, so uh, great, great uh, question or great topic that you're tackling, one that I have actually addressed in several ways. So let me take it from different angles. First of all, we are, a, as I said, a sexually, you know, biparental sexually reproducing species. So whenever there is conflict, you know, within humans, it's a lot more likely to be intrasexual, girls competing with other girls and men competing with other men than it is for, you know, the patriarchy to be putting down women. Now, the, this doesn't mean that historically there hasn't been patriarchal forces. I come from the Middle East, so I certainly know that there are patriarchal forces. But on average, the idea that the only way to emancipate women's rights is to pathologize half of humanity called men is a terribly losing proposition, right? And I'll give you a now a very personal anecdote related to father-son dynamics. And I actually covered this in a in a clip on my channel. I can't remember the exact title, but it, it, it is in reference to my son coming to me maybe about a year and a half ago. We were watching some, you know, some some clip on television where they were saying, you know, hashtag the future is female, toxic masculinity and so on. And my son, in all of his beautiful innocence, turned to me and, and asked a question that really broke my heart. He said something to the effect of, Daddy, I don't I don't understand. Are are, are boys bad? And I said, my God, the fact that this young child would even have the instinct to ask such a question, my God, have we done a poor <laughs> job in spreading these kinds of pathological ideas, these parasitic ideas, we, right? And let me just finish with this point about this whole dynamic between men and women. There used to be a time where women were uh, barred from entering universities, where women were barred from going to medical school or business school or law school. That is real and it was dreadful and we fought against it. However, today, universities are overwhelmingly outnumbered by women. As a matter of fact, I discuss uh, in several venues uh, the following finding. If you take across five racial categories, you know, black, white, uh, you know, uh, native, uh, Hispanic and so on, you take across five racial groups across four uh, educational attainment categories, associate's degree, which is half a bachelor's, bachelor's degree, master's degree, and doctorate. So you've got a four by five matrix. So you've got 20 different cells. In every single one of the cells, women outnumber men, meaning that you couldn't come up with data that was more contrary to the victimhood narrative that you know we need to be better allies to women in universities. We needed to be better allies to women in universities 70 years ago. We need to be better allies to women in universities today in Afghanistan, but we certainly don't need it in the West. But 
the victimology narrative is very intoxicating, something that I talk about in the parasitic mind. It's very alluring to always construct yourself as a victim, even if you're no longer a victim. So all of these parasitic ideas are dreadful. They are ripping the fabric of our societies. And again, take it from someone who comes from the Middle East. You don't want to have systems similar to those from which I ran. Yeah, and, and there's no doubt, too. I mean, I know even like over here in, in New York, one of the oldest bars, McSorley's, they, they didn't even allow women in the bar for, for I know, the, like one of the last ones to allow that to happen. And obviously there were some uh, bad transitions or, or bad traditions that we had that have evolved. But like you say, it, it, the pendulum just swung all the way and knocked the other side completely out of the box. And the victimhood mentality of what's going on in today's youth is very, very alarming. I just know from myself being a recovering alcoholic and addict that I had that kind of victim mindset of everybody else's fault, everything else's fault for my drinking but mine. And until I woke up to the idea that it was me, I began to change that philosophy around for myself. And I just see it in so many different aspects of our society now, and it's really crippling our society. You know, you're you're spot on. Look, personal agency and personal responsibility is is what m makes human beings great, right? I mean, otherwise, think about in the past where your happiness, for example, the ancient Greeks at first used to think, what is it to talk about happiness? It's the gods who decide whether an individual is happy or not. So it was a very fatalistic view, right? So there's nothing for you to seek in terms of being happy or not. It's written in the sky. It's fatalistic. And then subsequent ancient Greek philosophers tweaked that and said, well, sure, the gods might have something to do with it, but you also have personal responsibility and personal agency in making certain choices that either make you happy or unhappy. And by the way, that's the topic of my next book. That's why I'm. it's kind of intimately in, in my brain right now. And so uh, the idea of victimhood removes that personal agency, right? So Yes, of course, there have been peoples that have been uh, marginalized, that have been enslaved, but that's the definition of much of human history, right? Jews were enslaved by the Egyptians, right? On Passover, we celebrate the freeing of the Jews. Now, I don't have to go to 300 years ago of slavery. I escaped execution in Lebanon. I had to wear really good running shoes and run really fast because they were coming from me. So when I hear boo-hoo-hoo stories about 300 years ago that something happened to someone who looks like you, but that has nothing to do with today, you're being a faux victim, right? When you go to see a therapist, the therapist doesn't tell you, please wallow in your victimhood forevermore. What does he or she say? Yes, of course, let's recognize the terrible things that happened to you, but let's find tools to overcome that victimology. And yet, of course, the zeitgeist in today's society is no, 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 always wallow in victimhood. My wife's family left Turkey because of the genocide uh, from the, the Ottoman Empire. Then they moved to Lebanon and then they had to escape Lebanon to come to Canada. My own family, some of them left Syria because they were Syrian Jews and then escaped to Lebanon and then we escaped again. My people, if I say Jews, had a Holocaust 75 years ago. And yet we don't perpetually wallow in victimhood. We recognize that this happened to us, but then we kind of rub our hands and say, how can we make the world a better place? How can we advance despite millions of people who hate us? So of course, you're exactly right. Personal agencies is all that you want to talk about. And congratulations on having overcome your demons. Thank you, God. Yeah, and we and we do see that back. Even in the earliest civilizations, the Sumerians, we have evidence of slavery taking place in, in that form. And it's so it just seems like um, 
or one of those things where we have evolved. We forget sometimes that we did do something about that, and that gets lost. It's a whole nother topic, but I was excited to hear about the new book. That's what I wanted to ask you. What is next for you? Is it this next book? When can we expect to see it? Oh, thank you so much for asking uh, about it. Uh, so let me. So the next book is about how to live the good life. Now, you might say, well, there's only been about four trillion books that have been written on that. What, of course, makes it unique is that I am injecting my own personal anecdotes backed up by the latest science. And so what I basically do in the book is I say, look, there are certain decisions that we make and certain mindsets that we adopt that don't guarantee that we will find contentment and happiness, but certainly that it tilts the fulcrum towards happiness. So I'll just give you a few teasers to, to hopefully excite the audience. So when I talk about you know, optimal decisions that you could make that either impart great happiness or misery upon you. I talk about two decisions, right? Choosing the right spouse and choosing the right profession are either going to get you well on your way to happiness or are going to drive, drive you to depression. Why? Because if you wake up every day next to a person that you're really excited to be waking up next to, well, the day is really starting off in a great way. When you come back home to them, the day is really ending on a good note. And if in between you're at a job where you're saying, oh my God, I'm excited by the endless possibilities, then you've really, you know, you've cracked the code. Now, of course, it's not always easy. Sometimes we marry someone thinking, thinking that we're going to be happy with them and then things happen in life. So it's not a definitive uh, prescription. It's not a, here is a one, two, three recipe, but it basically says, look, here are a set of tools that if you adopt each of those, you're more likely than not to be happy. Can I give you one or two other examples? Do we have Go time? for it. So, for example, I talk about the uh, vari variety seeking that, you know, we, we, we know from, from ancient times that, you know, variety is the spice of life. And so what I do is, well, can you pursue variety and can that make you happy? And then, of course, as in most things in life, the answer is it depends. When it comes, for example, to sexual variety, there is there it's pulling you in different tugs. On the one hand, by being monogamous, by being true in your marriage, you increase your happiness. On average, uh, married people are happier than single people or divorced people and so on. But on the other hand, we also have an evolved desire for sexual variety. So there comes the conundrum. I also talk about food variety seeking, exercise variety seeking. Uh, intellectual variety seeking. So for example, I tend to be someone who's very much of an intellectual variety seeker, meaning that I, I'm not a stay in your lane professor. I don't only know one small thing and I can out talk anybody on this one small bullshit thing. But if you ask me about anything else, I'm a complete babbling idiot. No, I could talk to you about art history. I could talk to you about music. I could talk to you about literature. I could talk to you about religion in addition to my areas of specialization. And I think that ultimately, we have this big prefrontal cortex that needs to be nourished. And one of the ways that you nourish it is by having a variety of experiences that nourish that big brain of yours. So I give all of these different examples. I hope that people will like it. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm pumped up for it. It sounds awesome. And we definitely need more stuff like that because you're right. And I just think, I think that, like I said, getting back to the fatherless crisis, I just think if we could try to get our families back and strengthen our nuclear families in this country, boy, I think that will put us on the right track. So uh, I'm looking forward to the book myself. Last thing I want to hit you with here, I love to ask all the dads that I get on the podcast, what type of advice do you have for that new dad or for that about to be father who's out there listening? Okay, well, two things. Number one, prepare to have a sizable dip in your testosterone. Another, and again, that's another one of these uh, 
gold nuggets from evolutionary psychology. It turns out that when a father is expectant, he's about to have a child or immediately after having a child, there's a huge drop in their testosterone level. Now, of course, from an evolutionary perspective, that makes sense because you you want to have a different Darwinian pull that's pulling you towards your child, right? If if all you're thinking about all day is sex, if all you're driven is by your libidinal drive, then maybe your child will go unattended. So nature has solved that problem for us by ha by having us have a drop in testosterone. So that notwithstanding, uh, the advice I would give is be present, right? As I said, you know, uh, from the earliest of age possible, Yes, recognize that your children are children, but give them the dignity of their personhood. Talk to them as though they are these little cute adults. Nurture their minds, nurture their hearts, and hopefully they'll grow up to be great citizens. Yeah, very well said. I love the message. It's been an honor for me. I got to say, God, sad you're a first-class father all the way. And thank you so much for giving me a few minutes of your time here on First Class Fatherhood. Thank you so much, sir. You have been listening to First Class Fatherhood. First Class Fatherhood is a family-made media podcast please visit www.firstclassfatherhood.com or www.familymade.com to find out more details. You can order First Class Fatherhood advice and wisdom from high-profile dads on amazon.com or wherever books are sold. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Proverbs 22.6 tells us, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will never depart from it. God bless, and I'll catch you next time.